Welcome to Ants, Humans, and Stars. This is Digo, a digital nomad, and this is Caleb, an artist with a story to tell. Uh, this is a very special Black History Month episode for 2021. I'm excited. I've actually been looking forward to this, and I'm glad to tell my story today and also what you're going to cover today. I'm, I know this time, and I'm excited for it as well. <laughs> So I'm it's going to be, be covering um, a few articles about mixed race uh, peoples in the Americas mm. and their kind of first person views of it. Um, it's a special Vox article. So I'm really excited to read that. And Caleb will be... I will be covering a song by the Queen of Soul, um, her signature and biggest hit r-e-s-p-e-c-t mm, yes that's we right, need a lot of that respect yes <laughs> yes um so caleb i think you're gonna go first want me to start this off Alrighty, i have no problem doing that all right guys get yourself some popcorn a nice drink and settle in Cause I'm taking this back to the sixties, which was literally a, go- I mean, there's a lot of, well, the seventies and eighties and nineties are all too, but sixties was like a nice, nice golden age for music. Um, and really set the foundation for everything that we have now, like the sixties, whether it's from rock to R and B soul pop, whatever sixties mm-hmm. really helped set that foundation. So, all right, here goes. Aretha Franklin, known to the world over as the Queen of Soul. When did she get that title? I'm not exactly sure. But it was a tiny little song, maybe you've heard of it, named Respect, that without a doubt was an unshakable foundation that set her on her trajectory to royalty. But did you know that that song had a short life before she gave new meaning and new life to it? I did so, not, but I can imagine when it comes <laughs> to like Caleb telling us stories of like, you thought you knew this song, but it had this exactly. whole 100 year history right before. <laughs> right. Uh-uh, uh-uh. Wait, 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 wait. That's that's not how things started. Let me tell you. Let me tell you. In the Stone Ages, there was. <laughs> <laughs> they were clinking rocks together and. Uh, respect, man, respect. Exactly. So, Respect was written by Otis Redding. He originally wrote he originally wrote it for Speedo Sims, who intended to record it with his band, The Singing Demons. It started out as a ballad, but Redding later rewrote the lyrics and sped up the rhythm. Uh, but when Speedo and his band were unable to produce a good version, Redding decided to sing the song for himself, which Speedo agreed to. The inspiration for the song is said to have come when in response to Redding's complaints after a hard tour, drummer Al Jackson reportedly said, what are you griping about? You're on the road all the time. All you can look for is a little respect when you come home. The song was included on Redding's third studio album, Otis Blue, in 1965. The album became widely successful, even outside of his largely R&B and blues fan base. When released in the summer of 1965, the song reached the top five on Billboard's Black Singles chart and crossed over to Pop Radio's White Charts, peaking at number 35 there. At the time, the song became Redding's second largest crossover hit after I've Been Loving You Too Long. So in 1967, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Digo's looking I like, thought I, I don't like when you said it, I song. thought I heard it in my head, but then I lost it. I don't know if I actually know that song. 
yeah i don't think i maybe if i heard it but i don't know it based off the title either um so in 1967, producer Jerry Wexler booked Aretha Franklin for a series of recording dates in January to February of that year. Uh, in New York on Valentine's Day, February 14, 1967, a 24-year-old Aretha Franklin recorded Respect. And I think it's important to note that Aretha had been singing Respect in her live shows for several years before she recorded the song. So it's no surprise that when it came to uh, recording it, she knocked it clear out of the park. Um, one might wonder how a 24 year old could sing a song like that with such confidence, ease, tenacity and straight up attitude. But it's very plausible that plausible to say that Aretha was singing from a place in her life where she herself was at a point of demanding respect. That just hit me that like, dang, she was 24, man, 24. Um, because it's something that happens, um, when, uh, there's like this thing how like when people are older than you it's hard to imagine them at your age because they're older so yeah. i always i've always thought of aretha franklin as like in my mind she's always been 40 <laughs> like nothing younger than 40 so thinking of like or like even when i see her in these old videos from the 60s singing i'm just like it, i don't fully register that like yeah she was young she was mm-hmm. 20 24 25 um and that's crazy. And she was just singing her butt off. Um, so at that time, she was married to a man named Ted White. Uh, fellow Detroit singing star Betty Lavette described him as, quote, a smooth gentleman pimp. Etta James. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. Um, Etta James, you might know her from he, her. He a smooth fam- gentleman pimp. He, he not like the regular pimps. He, he a smooth right. gentleman. <laughs> <laughs> I can't, I can't. <laughs> um, so, Etta James, who you, you all, if you're listening, I'm sure you know her from her song, At Last, she even compared the couple to Ike and Tina Turner. Um, while his connections in the industry and ambition for her career were certainly helpful to her initially, he also seemed to have a bad influence on her alcohol use and her finances. Worse than that, he allegedly beat her, even in public. Yeah. White's violent streak also contributed to a notorious incident in the immediate lead up to the recording of Respect when the, comp- when the couple was flown out to Atlanta to record at Fame Studios with the renowned Muscle Shoals Rhythm Section. After a successful first day recording the title track and first single of the album that would become I Never Loved a Man the Way I Loved You, White got drunk and got into a charged fist fight with Fame Studios head Rick Hall. The couple left Alabama and reportedly separated for a period. Wexler spent 10 days trying to contact a missing Aretha, unsure of whether the project was over before it had begun. But she eventually surfaced and convened in New York with the Muscle Shoals musicians with white absent. The following week, they recorded Respect. Um, When Franklin recorded the song, she was not trying to make it a political anthem. David Ritz, author of biography Respect the Life of Aretha Franklin, said in an interview with The Post, if anything, the song was personal. She deconstructed and reconstructed the song. She gave it another groove the original song did not have. She added background parts. Before she sang the lead part, she turned the beat around and rewrote all all these background vocals. The original version by Otis Redding is a great song. He sings the hell out of it. But Aretha, in her reinvention, personalizes it. Uh, you are going to give me respect when you come home. It becomes a woman thing. Her, uh, But her version is so deep and so filled with angst, 
determination, tenacity, and all these contradictory emotions. That is how it became anthemic. So Redding's version is less of a plea for respect and more of a comment on a man's feeling of worth in his work life and at home. His version mentions that he's, quote, about to just give you all my money and that all he wants in return is respect. Redding tells the woman he is singing to that she can even, quote, do me wrong, honey. If you want to, you can do me wrong, honey, while I'm gone. Aretha kept the track's original tempo and most of Redding's original lyrics, but switched them around to a woman's perspective. She added the song's now iconic bridge and its infectious call and response, using her sisters as backup singers. In doing so, she transformed not only the meaning, but the song itself. And so Aretha's uh, version, um, again, is essentially a call to action and a a borderline demand for respect, all somehow packed into two and a half minutes. The repeated socket to me line sung by Franklin's sisters was an idea that Carolyn and Aretha had worked out together. Spelling out R-E-S-B-E-C-T was, according to engineer Tom Dowd, Carolyn's idea. Carolyn is her sister. Mm. Hope I'm not going too fast. Um, The phrase socket to me became a household expression. In an interview with Wise Fresh Air in 1999, Aretha said, quote, some of the girls are saying that to the fellas, like Sakatumi in this way or Sakatumi in that way. It's not sexual. It was not sexual, just a cliche line. Another famous line in Aretha's version is take care of TCB. TCB is an abbreviation commonly used in the 1960s and 70s, meaning taking care of business. Oh my God, this I, I is the that. first day in my life that I <laughs> that finally that. know <laughs> what that means. Right. I could have found out at yeah. any other time, but the, today's the day I I figured that out. I didn't know either, and, and now I want to like put that on a shirt. Um, <laughs> uh, so that phrase was incredibly widely, I mean, excuse me, that phrase was particularly widely used in African-American culture. Um, however, it was somewhat less well-known outside of that, and so it was often misquoted. Um, so... Aside from all that, the TCB stuff and and, and whatnot, Franklin's rendition found greater success in the original. It spent two weeks atop the Billboard Pop Singles charts and eight weeks on the Billboard Black Singles chart. The song owned the summer of 1967 and arrived amid many notable societal changes from the civil rights movement, the draft and war in Vietnam, political assassinations and the Equal Rights Amendment. There were a multitude of people demanding respect. Wexler said, quote, the song virtually defined the national consciousness at that moment in history. Ritz notes that the track's arrival on the chart um, on April 29th that year came the day after Muhammad Ali was stripped of his heavyweight boxing title for refusing to be drafted into the Vietnam War, which was his proclamation that he owed no deference to a nation that never had respected his own people. Uh, When asked about her audacious stance amid the amidst the feminist and civil rights movement franklin told the detroit free press i don't think it's bold at all i think it's quite natural that we all want respect and should get it respect will go on to win her two grammy awards in 1968 for best rhythm and blues recording and best rhythm and blues solo vocal performance female in 1987 the song was inducted into the grammy hall of fame and that same year aretha became the first woman ever to be inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame uh, oh, snap. Yeah. Um, Rolling Stone named Respect one of the top five greatest songs of all time, saying Franklin wasn't asked 
asking for anything. She sank from higher ground. A woman calling an end to the exhaustion and sacrifice of a raw deal with scorching sexual authority. In short, if you want some, you will earn it. (laughs) But it goes without saying the song's impact over the years is unquantifiable. In some ways, single-handedly liberating the minds and giving uh, voice to women, black people, and especially black women everywhere. Christina Capitides of CBS News sums things up nicely. Creating a song that iconic is no small feat. And it's all the more incredible when one considers the cultural moment in which Franklin did it. Perhaps that's why music fans the world over are filled with one overpowering emotion for the Queen of Soul. R-E-S-B-E-C-T. Respect. Yeah. So. Um, I cross wires with RSPCT and thank. Yeah. When I play it in my head, I cross them too. Yeah. Yeah. Very similar. And think then reminds me, obviously of seeing her um, when I was really young in blues brothers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Where she had her like five minutes of fame in, in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Um, She didn't really launch really far into Hollywood, but like, I like I think of her and I think of RSPCT and her small five minutes in the Blues yeah. Brothers, which that scene is great. And it's kind of like the oh, same yeah. thing with the RSPCT. Like, if you want something, you better think. Exactly. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Uh, she all sassy. She all like also everything every every picture of aretha outside of that movie is like glamour aretha like Mm -hmm. very voluptuous aretha but in that movie she's and she has like the apron on and ape no makeup like just quote-unquote natural normal hair like nothing it's just just her you know very nakedly her and it's like it's actually i like i like that that they chose her to just she was like, I'm going to commit to this role and I'm going to be the everyday woman mm-hmm. and and tell these... I think she actually was singing to like somebody she knew in that scene too. Anyway, um, she was probably thinking uh, of that, that guy. She was probably thinking of that guy exactly. that, that, that was uh, abusing her, her basically. Ex. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, that ex, that... Uh, what's it called? Abusive relationship or... Um, toxic relationship mm-hmm. she turned that around <laughs> she turned that around and fed it right into art into my music and <laughs> but i also find it interesting she is um i mean that's kind of how she's always been to me and and from what i've documentaries i've seen and, and people's account of her like she's very much the person who was like quiet like not Mm. like when i think of aretha franklin like before i had done this research i never knew about that like i never even heard that like oh she was in an abusive relationship at one point and clearly everybody knew about it if you have other these other famous very famous singers um you know they were all like aware of what was going on too um but i i guess i just yeah i just find it interesting because not that it's necessarily a bad thing but we definitely live in a time where everybody says everything they've been through and they Uh talk about it and they share it and 
again, you know, up until she passed, I never heard her going around talking about, yeah, I was in this, I was married to this guy and he was abusing me. So again, there's nothing wrong with saying it, but, um, she's kind of like that, like quiet, uh, strong woman. That's like, yeah, I done been through some stuff. Um, you know, you don't, you don't even know the half of it, but I done been through some but stuff, it's like- but I'm all you see is the, like you said, the glamour, the amazingness, mm-hmm. the like, oh my gosh, this icon, this legend, this amazing singer and vocalist. Um, and again, how she was able to turn it around to make it serve her so hard that mm-hmm. generations, exactly, a, a generation later doesn't even know about it. Yeah, D- doesn't yeah. even know. It's just Aretha and the power of Aretha and that powerful woman. Yeah, and not even knowing about it. That's how she killed that relationship out of her life. She just pushed that thing out of her life. Um, oh, yeah. Was able completely. to conquer it and become something completely different. That's and that, cool. like, in no way, yeah, that in no way was attached to her at all. Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. no one I don't, didn't define her at all. Exactly. Didn't, yeah. you know, yeah. Oh, good for her. Aretha. One time she re- she did she did a um a cover for somebody like a few years before she passed. She was she did a cover for somebody who was maybe Adele. I don't know. Uh, she did somebody, do an Adele cover. Yeah. Do, what, do you know what track? Rolling it is? in the deep. That one. Okay. Uh huh. And I did like i was into i'm still into it but i was way more into it then electronic yeah. music and i did a little you know little remix i mean it's a nothing a nothing but i do you know it was aretha franklin's adele's and my you know dga's remix and it and it, and it nice. picked up it's oh, too wow. far though because then it was noticed and it was in, it's uh, like copyright dang <laughs> hey but i flew up you're about to, the to be a sun. number one you about to have a number I one hit like, yeah and then when it was cut i was like all right it was good enough that you thought it was too it it went too too far yeah i'll take it i'll take it that's good enough for me oh Um, wow that's super cool though i didn't know that (sighs) the next remix we will get clearance for so you can have that number one hit (laughs) okay (laughs) um Speaking of, if anybody's been listening, I've been putting a lot of little dancing ads. I hope you like them. Um, okay. I, um, as I said, I'm looking forward to Black History Month because it allows me to dive into specific issues and specific um, stories that, you know, it's not like I don't look into it, but it like allows me to really dedicate and focus in on obviously culture people ethnicities and obviously always our sideline throughout history it's always oh, yeah. the case and so it's people need like, to recognize that black history is american mm-hmm. history and that's a whole yeah. conversation within itself um, it is but yeah the birth of america is with this oh yeah with this particular sideline history always it's just like yeah exactly um like i mentioned before um when when i was looking for what to cover for um today's episode 
I came across this Vox article. It's called The Loneliness of Being Mixed Race in America. Um, And recently in my work, uh, we've started to um, do some uh, inclusive BIPOC groups uh, in my actual work. And so BIPOC is kind of like black indigenous people of color. It's, 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 it's exactly. It's, 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 it's in my, um, it's in my forefront. I, I'm thinking about it a lot now and to be included into something that I wasn't necessarily thinking I was a part of. Um, and now I feel like I'm part of it's anyways, this article brought up a lot about what I was feeling and just really brings it like really into a clear picture of um, BIPOC and what it what it means to be black or a little bit black or however you wanted to find it in America. And there are a few, uh, this is a collection of first person essays and interviews um, that Vox collected. Uh, unique perspectives on these complicated issues of race. And this article that I pulled from is part one of Vox's exploration of multiracial identity in America. Um, Recently recently released, um, they did part one on this I'm going to read. Part two, I forget, and part three was about Kamala Harris, Kamala Harris, uh, vice president. Vice Come President on Kamala Harris, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, <clears throat> let me get into it. As Black Lives Matter protests swept the country in 2020, the issue of race became the forefront of national conversation. Everywhere, Americans engage in deep discussions about the experience of Black and other non-white people in our country and including how race impacts the daily lives of all Americans in unequal ways. Um, so last year, uh, Vox, uh, they asked people of mixed descent to tell them how they felt about race and if the language about their identities had shifted over their lifetime. Over and over again, Vox heard from their respondents that they frequently felt isolated, confused, Uh, about their identities and frustrated when it came to, you know, when others attempted to dole them or like put them into specific boxes. Um, I encountered this like a couple of weeks ago um, when we were just looking at filling out um, the vaccine uh, mm-hmm. form for Fairfax County. Mm-hmm. Um, just, just looking at it, you know what it looked in. And, and again, there's the, typical like what ethnicity are you what race are you these two questions that are like put out Mm -hmm. and all the boxes it's like this doesn't this is the identification as seen through a white lens Mm -hmm. and it's still that way and i looked at it i was like i know i'm virginia but i just didn't i really 2021 virginia and these are the options i feel like i'm in the 90s still with you know the boxes i filled in when i was taking standardized testing you know Mm -hmm. in the 90s like this needs to be updated anyway so here are these six selected stories 
from people from New York to California to Texas. So I'm going to read it um, through their words uh, as best as I can. <laughs> um, so first one is from Michael Hannes Calderon, 24. He's in Berkeley, California. I've found terms to identify myself that feel somewhat comfortable, but also somewhat unsatisfying. I don't really know how to count for my mother's background, which as best could be described as mestizo Colombian. Using the term person of color to account for it feels strange, just given what I see when I look at the mirror. But I also feel a kind of obligation not to let the complex mix of identities I inherited from my mother disappear into the whiteness inherited from my father. I don't really know where that leaves me, to be honest, beyond using broader terms like Latino, Colombian-American, white-passing, mixed or mild-tiracial. Race didn't come up a lot when I was growing up in suburban Ohio. <laughs> Obviously, there was a Latino population there, but it wasn't really a huge part of my life uh, beyond my mother at home. It wasn't like the way that Miami is with the strong Cuban-American community. It was almost like an issue of whiteness and skin and color being associated with some of those terms, which sort of changed the dynamic depending on the environment because I'm white passing even like with a tan. My mom went to great lengths to make sure that I could succeed in the U.S. When I was still quite little, my Spanish skills were actually developing at a better pace than my English ones. That is, until someone suggested to her that if my English skills didn't improve, I would be at risk at falling behind the other kids and need speech therapy. The, this really spurred her to take on serious action. She read countless books to me every night in English until I was a bookworm who sounded as Midwestern as the rest of my neighbors. To this day, out, out of all the things she remembers about my academic career, my high marks in English tests are some of the ones she is proudest of. But I would be remiss if I did not mention the efforts of my mom to teach me about her identity, homeland, and culture, too. She always taught me fiercely to be fiercely proud of my blended heritage and never to be afraid to share it with others. At times, it was pretty easy how well I adjusted to suburban Ohio. I didn't really think about the consequences of it until I was a bit older because it just got easier to not just show that heritage. That shifted away when I went to college, which was a much more progressive environment. I was sort of encouraged to explore that identity. We had a Latinx group. Latinx is a gender-neutral term to refer to a Latino-Latina person. Um, uh, so uh, that Latinx group on campus. And I think at times it was a little bit difficult for me to relate to others in the group. They were always welcoming. And it wasn't that I didn't feel included, but I think there was more of their experiences were just so different from mine. The experience of being a Salvadorian American who was brown and grew up in, let's say, San Francisco with a pretty solid Latino community around them felt so wildly different from a white passing half Colombian, half American person growing up in suburban Ohio. We didn't really have a lot of common, a lot in common beyond the shared language. It's always been important to me to recognize both parts of my heritage, but I suppose that the only one that I really felt like it needed exploring was my Colombian side, because I was always within the dominant side of the mainstream American culture. I think that at times it almost felt easier, like everyone encourages you to kind of fall into that mainstream culture and assimilate. 
if you don't have that kind of connection to first gen or community of immigrants who are actually actively forming a special group, it's very easy to let one side of your heritage, the ones that's not the dominant culture, slip away. It's kind of one of my regrets, to be honest, and I've made an effort as I've gotten older to embrace that again. I identify with that one 100. (laughs) The idea of like the little bit of, you know, that heritage that I have and then having to totally assimilate into white America, that one. Mm-hmm. This is pretty much me right here in a nut. Um, okay. Abby White, 29, Brooklyn, New York. Right now, and this might change, I identify as a mixed race black person. But initially, I identified as biracial. I felt like growing up in the environment that I was in, in Cleveland, it was very clear to me that I was black and I was mixed. But when I moved to New York, that dramatically changed. I got a lot of people not really being able to recognize me in sight, on site. I've had to deal with an ethnic ambiguity that I never had to deal with before. So I had to figure out the language that I wanted to use to describe myself. I think part of that stems from the fact that when I grew up, my dad, who is black, wasn't really in my life. So a lot of my black identity came from the black people that my mother worked with and the neighborhood that I lived in. But also the family, my family was so white and frankly, for as much as I love my mother, racist. My grandfather would not be in the same room with her the entire nine months she was pregnant. He couldn't even hold me for the first couple of months of my life. I sort of remember realizing my race when I was late elementary school age and I'd gotten in trouble at my grandmother's house and I remember putting like baby powder on my skin and like trying to convince myself for whatever reason that I would not be as in trouble if I looked more like my mom. I also felt like this struggle to feel connected with black people when I was growing up, I often felt like a conditional black person and I think there are some mixed race black folks that have a lot of anger about that. When I was younger, I did, but I've also come to understand the idea of being authentically black is literally a response to things like the one-drop rule. The one-drop rule is that social and legal principle of racial classification that was historically prominent in the United States in the 20th century. It asserted that any person with even one ancestor of black ancestry is considered black. Continuing with her, uh, and being authentically black is also a response to this white supremacist idea of how we define race and mixed race. And black identity is also tied to sexual violence. So this reclamation of what it means to be black is a byproduct, byproduct of racism. There are also privileges I have that other non-mixed black people don't. I am lighter skinned. I may not be white passing, but I can pass as something else. Because for some people, I'm racially ambiguous. What has happened is I have found myself in situations with white people who feel very comfortable saying things that are not okay. It's sort of, quote, you're not like other girls. Like my grandfather wouldn't even be in the same room with my mom. But then once I came into this world and they realized 
oh, she's a baby and race has nothing to do with this. It wasn't, we see black people as human beings and we respect them. It became, you're a black child and you're the exception to the rule. (laughs) I identify with that specific notion she just talked about there, like the, you're the exception to the rule. Um, Mm -hmm. In my case, I mean, it's, it's about being part of the queer family. Like, you know, like I don't fit into the model you know and so i become an exception yeah you know that kind of thing Mm -hmm. and and of course i I can see how like way more intense it could be when like that part of that you're transmitting that you want to hide is your skin like (laughs) that's really intense you know Mm -hmm. i could shield because you can hide the being gay yeah for for you know and and that creates its own trauma but yeah when but she's powdering herself i mean Mm -hmm. that hit me you know um anyway so she continues it's weird being in places with people who try to make you the exception to the rule and it makes me want to double down because i'm not an exception i think that has really made me embrace this idea of i'm black i'm mixed but i'm black this is josh s 24 based in brooklyn new york I identify as multiracial. There hasn't really been another term that's resonated with me in that same way. I like breaking it down a little. I mean, my family is white. And then on my dad's side, I have family in Japan. I think the change in identity from when I was younger is that I actually have the language to describe who I am, which I lacked back then. I only know that I wasn't wholly white. But that I, but that it was thrown into pretty sharp contrast because I grew up into a town that was like 90, 99% white. Being thought of Asian was definitely foisted onto me because I did relatively well in school. There was a lot of, oh, the Asian got the good math score. There was something that fell off about that. Later, I realized that, well, my race, absolutely nothing to do with how I perform in school. They were creating this entire persona, this cruel game out of where my grandmother came from. Toward the end of high school, there was just this resentment of that part of myself. Not necessarily that I wanted to stop being mixed race, but that just I kind of wanted to be treated differently to just go away. Going to college in Washington, D.C. gave me that opportunity. Hardly anyone could tell that I was anything but white. And so for a couple of years there, I got to experience the world without microaggressions and the casual racism that I had when I was growing up. I was just able to coast by on whiteness, which was coming from where I was a bit of a relief. Of course, this was an environment that I didn't fit into for a number of reasons. I mean, even if I could present and act white, There was a substantial difference from my rural, more middle-class upbringing as opposed to the white, wealthy upbringing of the peers that I had. Even being white was a different kind of white. I think after a couple of years with wrestling, I'm never going to be white enough or rich enough to fit in with this brought me back to trying to reflect more on my grandma and her heritage with my father's experience. My father identifies as a person of color, But his response to it, especially as he had children, was sort of push it to the side. Uh, 
For all intents and purposes, my brother and I were raised with no connection to being Japanese, and he didn't really want to do anything to encourage it. His experience growing up in rural Minnesota being called every racial slur under the sun, I think there's trauma there, obviously. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think my parents operated to try and raise us to have a better and easier life. How I identify and being non-binary, it's something I grapple with constantly. It isn't to say that my experience is harder than other people's, but there is a constant vigilance to not, you know, slip into comfortable. As a masculine, white-passing person, life would probably go fine for me. It's having that self-awareness and continuously working on the awareness to keep pushing against white supremacy and patriarchy wherever it shows up. Thema Reed, 27. She's in Austin, Texas. <clears throat> I consider myself to be Chicana and black. On my dad's side, I'm not what a lot of New Mexico people would call Hispanic which is a pretty generic term. And then my mom is black and she was adopted and raised by a white woman when she was 14. She's really connected to her black roots though. And we have a big black family. So we were very connected to that, but there's a few different layers there. You know, I've always identified as both, but I definitely felt a lot of pressure to identify or present myself in different ways throughout my life. I've heard some black people say, well, mixed people ain't actually black. And I think that a lot of that comes from a feeling that mixed people can maybe turn off their blackness sometimes, or that people with mixed race have features that may give them privileges. I would also hear things like, oh, well, it's a shame that Thema is not more light-skinned. It's like, I'm not black enough, but I'm simultaneously too black, you know? At the same time, people who maybe aren't black or aren't mixed race look at me as a black woman. It's hard for me to get people to understand that just because I don't look Chicana doesn't mean that I'm not. In New Mexico, Chicana culture is a big thing. And I think that most people in New Mexico identify with it to some extent. So I didn't face as much judgment for not being Chicana enough as I did until I moved away. When I was in college, I went to Howard. And that really changed the way that I was able to identify with black part of me. I had never been in a place where there were so many black people that looked so many different ways. There were so many mixes with so many different countries, so many different socioeconomic backgrounds. I really felt accepted and loved for the first time. I think I kind of really grew up as a chameleon and I learned how to code switch and communicate with a lot of different people when I was really young. I think there's something special about that, but I think it does come with a cost. I really experienced it from both sides. I experienced colorism. Colorism is defined as prejudice or discrimination against individuals with a dark skin tone, typically among people of the same ethnic or racial group. So um, I've experienced people saying, well, you're not black and you're not Mexican enough. I really feel strongly connected to both though. And at the same time, sometimes I feel I don't belong to either. I hear that. I just have to say, I hear that. And I'm like, um, even as a black person, uh, I've gotten the like, oh, you're not 
black enough or because i don't play sports i don't mm-hmm. it i don't really listen to hip hop music speak I, a certain way you exactly. don't look a certain way you don't dress a certain way that but supposedly the, is the ultra black or whatever yeah but i think the thing that i hope she specifically and 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 others who are um have black in them or just just black um i i i hope people understand because i had to understand that like black is not a thing like as as i'm sure you've heard people say like we are not a monolith we are Mm -hmm. all different things so um because how you just said at the end how she was like she doesn't she says something like she doesn't know like where she fits in Mm -hmm. or where she belongs and um i'm 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 like no, you being exactly who you are and then saying like, oh, I'm a black woman broadens that scope of what a black woman is. Um, me being a black guy that doesn't play sports and that is not doing whatever the quote unquote conventional black thing to do is expanding the mindset for people around me of, oh, what a black person is because, um, yeah, we're not the stereotypes. We're not just what you see on on television and so again i'm just trying to make the point of that i don't know it's kind of sad when people say they don't feel like they i don't know fit in or or mm-hmm. belong one way or the other or yeah because i don't have like yeah because i'm just like you're not you like there's nothing to fit into if that makes sense like you being you is your definition of being black and you know whatever whatever else and so yeah you define you be the definition for yourself don't um, sorry just hijacked your thing keep going keep going <laughs> no 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 it's all right we got another one from washington dc this is james hannah 35 <clears throat> i am a mix of brazilian and lebanese descent I think my identity is very much like a Venn diagram where I keep moving those various circles around and they overlap and keep changing. The one thing I have kept constant is some sense of mixedness. I have put myself in a commonly recognized box, though. It is Latino. (laughs) I grew up in inner city Philly, a predominantly black and Latino neighborhood. I very much connected with those communities and those cultures and tried to do everything that highlighted my Latino-ness, from clothes to manner of speech. My father being Lebanese, I think experienced some prejudices when he moved into the country, given the long-term history with our region and was never eager for me to play up that part of heritage and culture. So growing up in a predominantly Brazilian household, it was just easier to move forward with that, which another reason why I have identified as Latino. Um, as I got older and progressed into engineering world, that sort of shifted. That was probably the first time I was in a very white dominated setting. I did a lot of stuff to play my Latino down until I left, left for the social impact field where I thought I could sort of reconnect with the Latino pieces in me. Even now, there's elements of my identity that I don't get represented so clearly to someone who sees me as an early to mid-career professional, especially if they're white, I do get, oh, you're not that bad, especially if I talk about being Latino, growing up in a neighborhood and going to an inner city public school where I was treated a certain kind of way by teachers and the powers that could be. 
it's always frustrating or disappointing because when I hear that, that very much means to me that you don't see me. Like you want to be comfortable with me in a certain box. And you're not interested with actual things that have shaped me to who I am today. I've been called ethnically ambiguous by more than one person. It makes me feel like a blank slate sometimes, but in some ways, it's kind of cool because I feel like it's someone's trying to identify with you or call you one of them creates openness that actually connects people. And lastly, but not least, Christina, 43, LA, California. I identify proudly as a multiracial woman and as a woman of color. This is because the world sees me as a woman of color. I've never been perceived as a white woman. I only recently became confident that I could just, in some circumstances, say, I'm Filipino. I don't always have to qualify the basis of my identity to somebody. That is very new for me because I've always felt the need to say, you're only half, or remind me that I'm also white. But as I've gotten older and just more recently with conversations about race, I've kind of realized that I don't care anymore. I'm Filipino. I'm white. I don't always have to say all of my mixed percentages to everybody. When I was younger, I would always qualify everything by saying, I'm half white. I didn't want people to think I was trying to co-opt any identities or infringe on anyone's spaces. In college, friends would take me to Filipino student group meetings, and I just always felt like the imposter, like I don't have a right to be here. I don't know if that's true or not to this day. I still don't quite know my place sometimes. I just don't feel at home with the Filipino community as I do with my Filipino family. At the same time, I didn't want to feel like that was denying my mom. Even though I don't identify as a white person, I was raised by a white mom who has a beautiful history in life too. So I don't like to discount that. I sort of loathe the inevitable reductive discussions that pop up whenever a multiracial person comes up, whether it's Kamala Harris or Bruno Mars. (laughs) I just wish the world knew they don't get to tell multiracial people how we identify. Each of our own experiences is incredibly unique depending on who we were raised by, where we were raised by, and how we look. I also wish people would stop portraying mixed people as so tragic. I grew up in the 90s, and every discussion about it was about how we were so tortured. It almost seemed like they were putting it out there as a cautionary tale about having multiracial children, multicultural children. But for me, most of the negative aspects of being mixed were external, not internal. I absolutely would not change being mixed for the world. I think she says it perfectly. (laughs) That's exactly what it is. It's like, there may be these struggles, but they're all out there. I don't struggle. I'm actually loving it. Like, I'm Mm -hmm. so glad, you know, I being me myself and I representing all these six articles, I'm sure that these people have gone through their troubles, but the coolness of having two worlds to 
to dive into. You know, you you can identify with these two and sometimes very like polar opposite worlds. That's cool. Mm-hmm. That's nice. Sometimes you have three of them. I got a friend. I have a friend. He has uh, Scottish blood. Okay. So that's what he looks like. Mm-hmm. Who grew up in Portugal. Uh, who then migrated to the US. And he speaks like a Latino. Mm-hmm. He looks like somebody from Braveheart. <laughs> See, it is mm-hmm. the weirdest thing to like like when this is like you know, it, it happens it's just like you see somebody it's like what are you you know i just want to you know be, then you speak and it's just what i'm confused but um it's just from constant exposure to the everyday need to have to encapsulate somebody that you you are automatically doing that same thing and that when and in, in this case where, well, my particular friend, he, he didn't fill in any sort of boxes. And then you're like, okay, exactly. You're your own person mm-hmm. as everybody else is. Like you don't have to be the special case to be your own special person. Like you are your own special person at all times and everyone is. And whether or not you're just this or oh, you know, it's like, please can stop this identification. Jesus, it means nothing. It doesn't mean anything when it comes to like your day and day. You know, you don't go and like pick up something or like do something because am I black or am I Filipino or am I white? Like you don't think about that way when you're doing your everyday. You're just, mm-hmm. you're just me and this is the way I would do it. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> I don't think it's ever been more important to focus on black history than 2021. I feel like every year it's even more important than last year to focus on black history. And I just hope it, I was literally just thinking before we started, I just hope that it can start becoming the focus again, because black history is American history. Um, mm-hmm. And we built this country, black people single-handedly built this country. Um, uh, and I hope that, it can start becoming the focus just based off of that as opposed to tragedy because as awesome as the um uh social social awakening and social justice um uh yeah the awareness that happened this past summer not only here, but just all around the world, as awesome as that was, it stemmed from a black man being killed, George Floyd. Um, Mm -hmm. And not only just him, so many others, from Breonna Taylor to Ahmaud Arbery to going back to Trayvon Martin. And so I'm, as a black man, I'm, I'm over this people only wanting to be affected when, um, when it's a tragedy when it when when um uh right yeah a black person is being murdered or har- killed harassed um brutalized by police like i hope we can get to a point where it's like um no we need equality and fairness um for black people um just because we're regular people and that reverberates to everyone else and all these other minorities and cultures um 
I mean, when you do your history, whether it's the women's movement or uh, the LGBT movement um, or Latinx um, people in this country and, and when it comes to, to immigration and all this stuff, like they all got their tactics from black people and our, our fight. And so like, and, and, and uh, when it came to like women getting the right to vote and, 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 and gays being discriminated against, they went back to the civil rights act the, I'm talking about the people in Congress now went back as justification for like, yeah, this falls under giving equality for everyone. So, um, yeah, black history, black history and, 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 and black people advancing is not just for us. Like it's, yeah. Like when we do better, everybody else does better. If that, I hope that comes across right. I hope that makes sense. No, no, that's it. And you're right to point out that forward movement, unfortunately tends to only happen after tragedy and sometimes mm-hmm. it takes like immense tragedy for it to move an inch yeah. um today i heard like back to back um without getting too much into it it was a fire in a um in a, in a textile plant being run entirely by women and these women were like protesting they were trying to get better wages they were trying to get safer environments to work in and unfortunately this fire broke out in this in this um factory and like hundreds dead you know Mm -hmm. and it was for all sorts of reasons that could have been avoided because of safety because of this because of the other and then after that then some things happened and then the other one was um uh during world war one uh soldiers were like i can't see my watch and so they were like there's radiation and so they had factories of women um painting dials of watches with uh radium which they didn't realize was highly cancerous and they were even telling them to like lick it like do something with their lips when they were doing the the painting of the dial to be better anyways huge amount of kicks or cases and whatever led to what we know now as osha and protecting you know uh workers but it was after hundreds of deaths of women in the worst way there this is this is intense but like their jaws would just disintegrate and fall off but that was and and that just the tragedy of knowing that once you saw yourself in the mirror at night and then you saw your jaw glowing in the dark mm-hmm. that you knew there was nothing you could do. There was there. I mean, even today, like when you're radiation poisoning, there's nothing to do. There's no pill yeah. you can take. Um, you can only just deal with the, but that kind of um, disintegration of, of your bone or, or, or internal organs, you know, it was just a slow, painful death secure, secure. Definitely. You're going to die. Um, yeah. Anywho, so yes, the ongoing theme is lots of tragedy before any movement can happen, and it, and it better be a lot of numbers of deaths, or else no one really is going to care. That's mm-hmm. when finally the world turns and sees, oh shit! But if it's just a few, or if it's you know, it could be shoved under the rug, then and then that sucks. It's always been that way, um, and specifically in this country we've mm-hmm. been being killed and and uh 
have been dying since his inception at the hands of those in power um, and those in authority and wealth. Authoritative, is that the right word? Authoritative positions. Authoritative um, positions, but also so that's, wealthy positions. Like just people with money. Like yeah. you either have power and money or just money. And those are say, the but ones it's not being able to do it. You look at police brutality, that has nothing to do with money. That has to do with just people being well, terrible about, human beings. Um, um, and, and Police and, brutality can be linked to, um, okay, you can say uh, gun control plus how you become a cop plus the racism um you're not dealing with any of those you're as um the federal government you're not saying we need these types of police officers of you know they need four or five years of training oh that's too expensive which is the same mentality as these people who are like let's put fire extinguishers safety things you know, fire exits, you know, simple things like that. I'm like, oh, no, 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 that's too expensive. We're not going to do that. It, it just like why the money thing is is what people will go to when they don't want to make a change. This is just ridiculous. It, and, and when you always look at it like in hindsight, like how terrible, you know, you didn't do that and the other because of money. Well, yeah. Because and that's, you want to keep that status. That's you want whatever. That's an excuse. Well, oh, why we can't have healthcare for everyone because mm-hmm. of the money. But just for the record, saying I am all for defunding the police. We don't need to give them mm-hmm. any more money. Um, and I'm I'm ultimately for the abolition happened. of police. Um, it just happened two days ago, right? What with like, the police when, when they when what the 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 nine year old? Yeah, when she they maced that nine year old. Where girl? you yeah. could have called exactly a healthcare worker to calm down the little girl i don't know if you watch the video i mean to yell at you i get oh, yeah. worked I, up I saw it. but I she's saw it. asking for her dad that is when you need a healthcare professional there to say one to to calm her down say hey, everything's gonna be okay then get on the phone and call her dad like what is so hard about that it's 2021 somebody can find her dad i don't care what was going on the fact that a child is telling an adult i'm a child the, the the police officer if you guys haven't seen the video those listening tells her you know just get in the car why are you acting like a kid and she tells him what are you i am a kid and so this is the scene from hook in the 90s that i just saw uh the kid is like in the plane and he's hitting the, the window with the baseball and robin williams is like stop that and he's like grow up stop acting like a child and the kid is like i am a child and yeah. then robin williams is like grow up you yeah. know it was exactly that scene and if i were ever in the vicinity of a nine-year-old who's going crazy and i can't control this nine-year-old it would be me that would be like damn look i can't even control this nine-year-old you know it's i'm the issue here i can't you know mm-hmm. like uh, the issue isn't the nine-year-old it's because the nine-year-old is being whatever that nine-year-old is going to be you know, mm-hmm. it's 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 the nine year old is doing exactly what the nine year old is supposed to be doing, living, doing its thing. I am the one who is trying to get it under control, and if I am not able to do that, then then obviously I need help. I'm not the one to do it. You know, obviously, I, I again, what I'm trying to say is like the issue is mine mm-hmm. as the adult. Exactly, so, as the exactly as the adult, and also I just want to say violence. Then being the answer in this case is like 
are you kidding me? You, If you were taking care of your niece, nephew, and they couldn't be put under control, and you just, what, you, you hit them? Your sister or your brother would be so furious with mm-hmm. you. You know, if you if you were to violently act upon somebody who, who was throwing a tantrum or, or doing whatever, you know, who, if they were young, even if they're older, like obviously violence is never good, thing, but a kid... They are allowed to do whatever they want. They can throw their some. They can scream. They can yell. They can do everything. It's a kid. Now I don't. I don't agree with all that because when you five, uh, uh-uh, uh, I'm not asking you. Can you sit down and stop touching stuff? Stop touching stuff. But that's a, no. but that's a different thing. If they're your kid, you are in this. Exactly. Place, you are this in this. Not, this yeah. This is something. This is them. something different. You're yeah. in a position yeah, yeah. in a uh, a authoritative position, and you have power. But I, I just wanted to to say and make clear. I think what is just as egregious as the violence um, being used as a response to quell the situation is the fact that when violence is used, um, there is no accountability from the other people around, the other people in authority and power, the other police around to say, hey, that is that is wrong. That like, what are you doing? Um, we saw that with George Floyd, where uh, the police officer on his neck and there's three four other police officers around just acting like this is a normal day when that guy when that guy pepper sprayed this nine-year-old girl not once did anyone the other cop immediately arrest arresting that him person. exactly like, that, that would have been the proper and there response. was not a response what from any of the cops doing? even the woman saying like what are you doing like why are you why are you macing a nine-year-old girl so and again that is another reason why I am all for defunding and ultimately abolishing police because the institution, it is not just a, this bad apple thing that people try and say, Mm -hmm. like, no, it is, this is a a whole entire institution, a way of like, a way of thinking that you cannot, um, uh, you cannot reform this, Mm -hmm. this way of thinking, you know, this needs to be completely deconstructed and something else has to be put in place. Um, that's what it is. I, th- I th- said it a couple of times before that the it works. Our system works. The exactly way how built, it's supposed to. It works. <laughs> yeah, it, it works, works perfectly. It, it works wonderfully and, the way yeah. it was designed. And we've gone too far with it to say that we're going to change a few things and that, that that'll totally be okay and everybody will be right as rain. Mm-hmm. It would be like, oh no, we... <laughs> You know, you just got to start fresh piece of paper, you know, delete that Word document, bring up a new Word document yeah. and, and start get to type it. You get know, to you, type it. You get it because you know, yeah. it's too far. You've too far. So um, I really love diving into Aretha that yeah. I was like listening to her and thinking about her because I don't know. Every time she came on the radio. Oldies 100. I don't know if you were ever listening mm-hmm, to that radio mm-hmm. station. Later but, on, but I know what you're la- talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, no, it's good. That song, good stuff. it was always like, it's still cool to listen to that. Oh, yeah. Before I even knew who I think Aretha was, I knew that song. Like, I just, yep. I knew, like, yep. oh, the Respect mm-hmm. song. As a kid, I'm talking about as a kid, people, okay? I wasn't a teen. I knew. <laughs> By then, I knew who Aretha was. Okay, I grew up it's in a so black household. That it's, <laughs> it's so cute that it's now totally okay not to know something, like, like anything Is big it? or small. <laughs> well, I mean, I think 
there's still like if you're a kid young kid today and you don't know like Dua Lipa for, sec- yeah, for instance yeah, like yeah, you're still yeah. made fun of but if you don't know something huge that was now mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. I think it's the same thing like when we grew up and we really know anything about the 60s yeah, it was like yeah. okay it's okay you yeah, know yeah. you know your stuff exactly. no 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 <laughs> now see, it's like cute it's like you don't guys don't know that I know but you're talking about what that's like my little cousin you know who the told Beatles are you don't know what Aretha is you don't know what this movie is you've never heard of Jurassic Park yeah, my little cousin <laughs> told me he didn't know what a Game Boy was I, I was I almost died I was like, oh, but I get it. You, yeah. 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 That's a good time. That's why we got to teach. So, What's that? Yeah. How's that Whitney song go? Uh, I believe the children are our future. Teach them well. <laughs> teach them let well. Them okay. Lead the way. Exactly. <laughs> but before you let them lead the way, teach them well. Okay. There's steps to this. <laughs> there, are, <laughs> there are steps to this. Uh, plenty of resources online. Yes. Learn. Don't just go on Twitter. Like, God, like there's yeah. no Go information Google. there on social media. There's like history.com and, 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 and there's so many articles great that you could read. Out. Like there's no excuse not to know some black mm-hmm. history. Educate yourself. So, and fight for what you love. Yes. But most importantly, fight for what's right. <laughs>